From the moment we're born and lock eyes with our parents, we are inspiring others. By showing up as a vessel of service, we not only help others, we help ourselves. Welcome to SOS Stories of Service, hosted by Teresa Carpenter, hear from ordinary people from all walks of life who have transformed their communities by performing extraordinary work. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the 59th episode of Stories of Service, Ordinary People Who Do Extraordinary Work. And I am the host of Stories of Service, Teresa Carpenter. And once again, we have another amazing guest on this episode. Uh, I do apologize. We had a little technical difficulties earlier, but I think we've got those resolved. So how are you doing, Susanna? Uh, Teresa, I'm doing wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I want to thank you so much for having the Stories of Service podcast. I have watched you grow from, you know, really a, a small passion project to now we're at the 59th episode. I cannot believe it. And you really show a variety of people with many different backgrounds and stories. And so I'm really honored to be a part of this. Well, I'm honored to have you and I can't wait to hear more of your story. And so what I'm going to do, and as I always do, is I'm going to start off just reading a little bit about you and what we're going to talk about. And then I'm just going to go right into the questions. If you guys are joining this us from YouTube, I see Joy right there. Uh, please hit that subscribe button. Uh, hit the bell button as well. Uh, so you'll be notified for future episodes. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and get started. And the one thing that we are going to talk about today is what it's like to work directly with the U.S. State Department, but then also have the tenacity to fight for what you do best. Today, we're going to hear from Captain Susanna Brugler, who after five tries, got what she desired. Her story is one of determination and one that it shows it's never too late to quit on what you really want in life. She is a native of Defiance, Ohio, graduating from the U.S. Naval Academy in 1998. She holds a master's degree in defense and strategic studies with a focus on international relations and African studies from the U.S. Naval War College. She graduated from Defense Information School, Defense Institute of Security Cooperation, Joint Special Operations University, and Defense Security Cooperation University. She started her career, like myself, as a surface warfare officer, serving aboard USS Mobile Bay in Yokosuka, Japan. And then after qualifying as a surface warfare officer, she lat transferred to public affairs. And in January 2002, she deployed to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, to facilitate media coverage of the first detainee flights from Afghanistan. She's taught the public affairs qualification course in Fort Meade before her serving on her last tour on active duty as director of the Navy Office of Information East in New York City. While there, she served as chief of public affairs for the commissioning of USS New York, which was a ship built with 7.5 tons of steel recovered from the World Trade Center after the September 11th terrorist attacks. In 2011, she transferred to the Navy Reserves and served as the Africa Partnership Station PAO for U.S. Sixth Fleet. Subsequent tours include serving as the Congressional Liaison Coordinator at NATO Headquarters Supreme Allied Commander Transformation in Norfolk, Virginia. I mean, I'm sorry, in Norfolk, yeah, Norfolk, Virginia. Executive Officer of the Naval Reserve, Chief of Naval Information, Navy Information Headquarters Unit at the Pentagon, and Director of Na Naval Reserve, Naval Special Warfare Public Affairs with NSW Group 11 in Coronado, California. In May 2017, she again laterally transferred to the Navy Reserve component of the Foreign Area Officer Community and served as the Naval Reserve Foreign Area Officer Africa Regional Lead assigned to U.S. Africa Command in Stuttgart, Germany. In 2021, she mobilized for one year as the liaison officer for Commander U.S. Naval Forces Central Command, 5th Fleet. 
She was called to serve as the interagency coordinator for Task Force 58, the contingency task force that was stood up to facilitate 7,709 7, uh, Afghan refugees from Kabul to the U.S. during the non-combatant emergency operations allies refuse. She finished her NAVSET mobilization this past May, serving as an inaugural member of the Commander Initiatives Group, advising the commander on global and regional strategic initiatives. In this role, she conceived of and led the first bilateral women in uniform leadership exchange with the Bahrainians, an event that fostered shared experiences and mutual understanding. Welcome. Teresa, thank you. Thanks again. So I always try to start off the questions with the most basic question for many of us who served in the United States military. And that is, um, being that you weren't really from a military town, what inspired you to uh, join the service? Well, I entered the service through the U.S. Naval Academy, and I have my parents to thank for that. They were both educators uh, in a small town, Defiance, Ohio, where I'm from, and they still live. They had four children, and they told us, uh, we do expect you to go to college. We will help you with that. But you have to go to a state school. And I always have this drive that I not only wanted to get out of defiance, but I wanted to get out of Ohio and sort of experience the world. And so the Navy was a natural fit for that. Uh, but really, it was my parents uh, that gave me that idea. They went on a recruiter's visit to the Naval Academy and told me it was like summer camp. It's um, a little different than summer camp, but <laughs> it did get me uh, interested and it, it really let, it got me on the path to a career and a lifetime of service. How did going to the Naval Academy uh, prep you for, for, for being in the Navy? I, it, going to the Naval Academy, first and foremost, is an extraordinary uh, honor and experience and opportunity for anybody who goes there. What I love about it is that uh, people from all 50 states, uh, you know, in, from territories such as from um, Puerto Rico, you know, they all have representation there. So you really go and you are in a diverse field and uh, a very competitive environment. <clears throat> But I, I like to tell people that I had always had the drive that I wanted. I thought since I was very young, I really wanted to do something extraordinary with my life. And because the Naval Academy led me to service in the Navy, the Navy has made my life beyond extraordinary and ways that I never even dreamed of or, or conceived of serving, um, you know, doing the things that I've done. So I'm so grateful to not only the Naval Academy, but also to the Navy. And that's amazing. That's, that's so outstanding. And so you started your career as a surface warfare officer. Did you know when you were going through your SWO training or when did you decide that you wanted to become a communicator and what was it yeah. that led you down that road? So I did an internship while I was still a midshipman at the Naval Academy. I did an internship at the public affairs office at the Naval Academy. So I had that seed planted that I, I thought, because I didn't, I just wanted to be a midshipman. I had no idea what I was going to do in the Navy. So when I served in the public affairs office there, I thought, oh, this is it. I, well, I'm going to be a public affairs officer. Like, this is my calling. I mean, this is definitely, you know, how I can serve, you know, provide my best for the U.S. Navy. So I always had that in the back of my mind. But when you go to uh, a service academy, 
you must serve select a warfare designator. So surface warfare was really uh, it for me. You know, I guess surface warfare selected me. I, I think that's a great way to put it because it's true. And um, because I was going to be on a ship, I, I selected an Aegis cruiser out of Yakuska. I had this wanderlust. I wanted to see the world. That's why I chose Yakuska. I wanted to be on the best, uh, you know, type of ship. And I knew that the Crudes was the way to go. They were the ones that were out there, you know, uh, you know, serving in a very unique capacity. So, so that's what I, that's what I chose. What I didn't know is how my surface warfare tour, and I only did one because I lateral transferred immediately after my first division officer tour. But that really has uh, formed the backbone of me as a naval officer me as a leader and um, also has just given me incredible capability and integrity in what I'm talking about, not only as a communicator when I served as a public affairs officer, but also as a foreign area officer. I uh, am able to you know, talk to our partner nations from the perspective of actually having served aboard ships, having stood the watch, you know, having, uh, you know, having sailed, uh, you know, uh, in the open waters. And that is incredibly valuable for me. Your journey is so unique, Susanna, because I don't talk to very many people who have had such a varied career in the military where you yeah. started off, you know, being a ship driver and then you went to public affairs and then now you're, you're doing diplomacy work. And I think it sounds to me like everything has kind of been a building block to, to that next step. Would you, would you say that? Yeah, I, I would say that. And Teresa, thank you for recognizing that. Um, I have had a varied career. It is an unusual career. I don't know that it can be replicated what I've done. Uh, and I don't say that from a position of, um, you know, uh, like, oh, I, I don't think anybody could do what I've done. That that's <laughs> not it. Uh, but I've just had incredible, uh, opportunities. I've had incredible, I've been in incredible situations. I've done these things. And, and again, I owe it to other people and I owe it to the service, uh, you know, to what the Navy has provided for me that I've been able to do the things that I've done. So um, I'm incredibly grateful. And yeah, it, it was a varied career. I will tell you this, and this might uh, make a little sense. When I was in high school, uh, we had exchange students at my high school, at Defiant Senior High School. And I always uh, had this idea of, I, I thought it was the neatest thing. I loved interacting with them. And I myself wanted to be an exchange student. Uh, but once, once again, my parents were teachers. They had four children. They couldn't afford to send me to Europe for a year to, you know, to study during high school. And I don't, I, I, I didn't love that answer, but I understood it. And so I sort of wanted to create uh, that experience, which I ended up doing uh, when I left active duty after 12 and a half years, which is a little unusual. Um, I followed an Olmsted scholar to Spain and I did it because I, <laughs> and it was in my mid thirties. It wasn't in my teens, my mid teens, but I did it in my mid thirties. And uh, I, I had that experience, you know, I, I, I did make that happen for myself. So what led to your decision uh, to leave active duty? What was what was driving yeah. you th down that road? Yeah, that's a that that's a great question, Teresa, because I served, like I said, one uh, tour as a surface warfare officer 
I lateral transferred into the public affairs community, which um, is an incredible community to be a part of. Uh, you know, many, many people, uh, I think, want to become PAOs and not everybody gets the opportunity to do it. Um, perhaps because I had known um, when I was a midshipman that I wanted to do it, I was able to kind of cultivate a career path where I could get into it right away after I got my warfare qualification. But, um, you know, I had done it for a good long while. And to the public affairs community's credit, like they had given me great opportunities to serve as a PAO. I served as a career department head, you know, department head of the media department. Mm -hmm. I had served in the Navy Office of Information East and it, I was... I headed the uh, communications component of the commissioning of USS New York. I worked with, uh, you know, the incredible entities in New York City at a time when, you know, Mayor Bloomberg was mayor. And I mean, it was like, it was an incredible experience. And I kind of thought um, rather naively in my, you know, early to mid thirties, well, what am I going to do to top this? I've done all these cool things. And, um, and there, there's also a, another important perspective. Communications back in 2009, 2010, and the public affairs field within the Navy is not what it is today. Back then, social media, if, you know, let's all take a, 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 a you know, trip back in time. But social media was just starting. And I don't think our senior leaders in the military quite understood the gravity and the depth and uh, the significant the strategic significance of communications back then it is much different today so i um i i didn't see i wasn't able to look into the future i mean i'm i'm not clairvoyant you know i, I didn't see that with time i i think uh you know the public affairs career field would would kind of um rise to the strategic significance that it has today. And so, um, you know, it was sort of a, some personal decisions, uh, you know, in my personal life, I was a divorcee and I, you know, so I didn't have a family that I was taking care of. And I, I was just at, I knew I was at a moment in time that if I wanted to make a change um, and try something different, and I'm a curious person, just naturally I'm curious. I think that's how I've been able to do three different designators, uh, I thought that was the time to do it. I do want to give a plug, though, because it was in its infancy, the Career um, Intermission Program, or CIP. I think had the CIP been established like it is today, I would have taken it. Because I just need, you know, at 12 and a half years, I just needed a break from the Navy um, to understand, uh, you know, what I know now. <laughs> but I didn't right. know it back then. I was younger, you know, so uh, I was a little definitely more naive and not nearly uh, as experienced as I am now. And, and you know, uh, that's just that that's how my career went. Wow. So what were some of the um, roles that you filled in your in your civilian life? Because now you're on this whole other journey. Now you're in your 30s. You're single. You, so so what is it that you, you, you start to do and, and, and where do you see your life going at this point? Yeah, great question. You're, I can tell you're a communicator. <laughs> so, so um, what I did, what, um, and I, you know, I, I think it can happen to a lot of people. I'm not saying it necessarily does, but I think um, a lot of naval officers that I've been in touch with, if they decide to get out, um, they like they may go to law school, or they may go to business school, like, or they may go to med school. Like, they know exactly what they want to do outside of the Navy. That's one group. 
And then there's another group and it's the group that I fell in, which was, I had no idea. I didn't have a definite plan uh, to, you know, how my life was going to look. I didn't know how it was going to look when I got out of the Navy. I just knew that I wanted to try something different. So um, what that led to, well, I, I told you, I had decided at some point in my last year on active duty that I was going to follow this, this Olmstead scholar. She was very gracious. She helped me get into um, a university where she was studying at the University of Cadiz, which is in Spain near Rota. And I strategically went there so that I could do, I knew I was becoming a reservist, so I could do mm -hmm. reserve work out of Rota. I started to do public affairs for Africa Partnership Station. So in that year in Cadiz, I actually spent two and a half months traveling. And this is, I was, I was living on my post 9-11 GI Bill. So I was living on a student stipend, but I was traveling to Kenya, Tanzania, Mozambique, Mauritius, and I was getting paid 04 pay. I thought, this is incredible. I mean, I would pay to do what I'm doing, serving the Navy, like, and I'm getting, you know, so I, um, I really relished, like that was probably one of the personally happiest times of my life, uh, you know, uh, and the following year, I had a great opportunity. Uh, I was able to join US Six Fleet. I moved to Naples from Rota and in Naples, Italy, I continued the APS mission. And, and when I, what I would do is I would go to the US embassies and I would, um, you know, I would work with them before we would have ships pull into these Af coastal African nations. And, mm -hmm. and so it, it was just, it was a dream. Uh, but to bring back to answer your question, because I'm getting a little bit off tangent, but I entered eventually after I served at NATO ACT, I entered um, civilian service for the Navy as a public affairs officer. So I essentially was doing what I had done in uniform but I was, I was, you know, serving in a different, in, in a different way. And it was in government service. Um, it, I personally uh, found it wasn't enough for me uh, because I knew by then, and then about 18 months after I left active duty, I knew that I missed it and I missed it a lot. And at first I tried to uh, ignore how much I missed serving in uniform and being on active duty. But as we know, as you and I both know, as time wore on, it became more and more apparent that I had invested a lot of time and I had invested a lot of myself. I had my years at the Naval Academy that I'm not even counting in these 12 and a half years of prior uh, active duty experience. And I, I began to recognize I really desired, truly desired for me to go back on and to serve on active duty to, to, to finish my career. Wow. That, that's incredible. Did you, did, was it good? Was it hard to, because if you're already on uh, reserves, I mean, it always depends on sort of what the timing is and the needs of the Navy. Was that difficult for you to go back on active duty after being in the reserves? Um, it wasn't difficult to go back on active duty. As a reservist, we have uh, various opportunities throughout our career to go back and serve on active duty. Now, um, I did that over this past year, what brought me to serve on act to actually, I, at this point now, let's catch everybody up. I'm married and I have two, two young children, um, but I wasn't um, making the promotion milestone that I, I really wanted to make. So in order to give myself the best chance, and this is in my reserve career, to give myself the best chance to make the promotion milestone, which is 06, which I am now, I'm um, uh, very grateful that, that I did make mm -hmm. it. 
Congratulations. But, uh, I served I served on active duty at the U.S. Fifth Fleet. And that year, um, away from my family, um, which was a hard, the, probably the hardest personal decision of my life, but it, it transformed the opportunities for me. Um, and it helped me reach my all-time goal, which was number one, to make 06, which I made this past year at, on my fifth look. And then number two, uh, to go back on permanent active duty, which of, as of this past week I have done. So I am now a 1710. I am back on permanent active duty. I will finish my Naval career as an active duty service member. Um, I, without sounding Pollyanna-ish because it took a whole lot of blood, sweat and tears to do it, but I really am living my dream right now and I'm so grateful for it. That's amazing. What was the hardest part of uh, getting through this process? I mean, you, you, you said five times. You, yes. It must have been like at the, around the third try, you must have just been like, <laughs> what else can I do? Um, what yeah, was it? So, yeah. So tell me so, a little so bit. I'll, I'll, I'll try to explain a little bit about what it was like. So um, we sort of skipped over, I skipped over, uh, quite frankly, uh, when I shifted from being a uh, public affairs officer to becoming a foreign area officer. And I had known that I wanted to be a FAO, but the Navy Reserve didn't have a FAO community. <clears throat> when we did um, with this new community, and we've only been in existence for maybe six or seven years, um, when that came about, I had my eye on it. I wanted to do it. I applied the first time there was a board because there were two boards on an annual basis that, that formed the foundation of roughly 50 officers in the community. So the first board, I wasn't selected and I was, you know, there were some prerequisites that I had been working on, but weren't completed yet. So um, the second board, I did get picked up, but however, uh, that board where I got picked up, I was pregnant with my second uh, son and six months later after I changed to be a FAO because the public affairs community um, is quick in their advancements. They, they do have, I think, an earlier sort of a leg up on other communities. Um, I was a senior 05 and immediately I was considered for 06. So I had been a FAO for six months and it was my first look at Navy captain. Everybody else who was being considered got mm. picked, selected on that first board. So they had at least one or two FAO fit reps. I had zero FAO fit reps mm. and I was up for my first look. Um, add the complexity of having a newborn uh, and then being in a, all of a sudden a career field where you are expected to go overseas and serve in U.S. embassies. Awesome work, like excellent work. Love it. L love what Theos do. But personally for me at that point in time, when I was breastfeeding my son, I wasn't in the capacity where I could just take off for two weeks or two months and serve overseas at a U.S. embassy. Uh, you know, with I, I just, I didn't, I wasn't in that space where I could do that. So right. um, the, it was funny you said the third look because it was the third look when I wasn't selected, when I really did that deep internal deep dive in myself and, and asked myself, Susanna, do you, you know, are you, do you want to do what it takes, which is in my mind was to take this deployment, the mobilization, an unaccompanied tour, uh, go to, you know, go to the Fifth Fleet AOR, and like, are you up for that? Because if you're not, you probably won't make captain. So I, I had that heart to heart with myself and I, I chose I was going to go for it. Wow. 
That is a tough decision too, because no matter how you look at it, you're going to have to make a sacrifice somewhere. And so it's just a matter of what it is you're willing to sacrifice versus what it is you're willing to uh, just keep keep on going for no matter what, right. because um, if you have it in your mind. But it sounds like you were always sort of one step ahead of where you 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 felt you needed to be, because um, you were always sort of thinking ahead. You may not have known where the road was going to end, but you kind of had a general direction. I mean, that's what I'm sensing as I'm as I'm hearing your story. You you would choose locations and choose things to sort of drive you to a certain point. And then yeah. sort of let, let life dictate what, you know, and, and have a little bit of chance thrown in there and opportunity as well. But um, you, you definitely thought through where this path would go. Yeah, I, like you said, I, I didn't know where it was leading. But, um, you know, Teresa, somewhere along the way, I kind of recognized I am the best in the world at being Susanna Brugler and making, you know, decisions and knowing what, Susanna Brugler, you know, can contribute and, and, and what, what my desires are. And, and, and I just have to have faith in that. And, uh, sometimes it's been challenging. Sometimes, um, I have made a decision and thought, oh my God, what did I do? Uh, but with a little bit of faith, <laughs> you know, I mean, headed, heading to Bahrain and leaving my family that that was one of those times when I first landed and I'm, you know, in a foreign country and I'm in a new job and, and I'm just like, Susanna, what did you sign yourself up for? But, you know, at the end, it all, it all came to it, to a nice, um, a nice finish for me there. Yeah. What would you say is your, um, your strong suit? Like, what would you say is the thing that you, you bring, cause you know yourself very well, it sounds like. And what would you say is like that one thing that you, you can always sort of bring to the table and bring of yourself to an organization? Well, personal connection is really important to me. So, and I think as communicators, the more we can get to personal connection um, through many channels, many methods, many ways, uh, you know, then we actually have a higher chance of success of doing our jobs. Same thing in the foreign area officer community what we're charged with knowing strategically, how to provide, um, you know, consult, how to interact with our partner nations. And when I say consult, I mean consult to our bosses, to our superiors, to our flag officers, to our fleet commanders. Uh, that personal connection is so important and so crucial. And I think that's something I'm able to provide. I think when people talk to me, they know that they're talking to Susanna Brugler and I am telling them my truth and what I know. Um, it might be different from what they see. It might be, and if it is all the better, you know, it, it sure. might uh, be a gut check for them. And they're like, yeah, okay. I was thinking that. And you know, she's thinking that, okay. Um, or it might be, uh, I'm going to go the other way. Yeah. You know, and that's fine mm -hmm. too. But, um, I think maybe a level of authenticity is probably, um, I think what has served me well. What was, would you say was the hardest part of navigating a triple career <laughs> and going <laughs> all these different roads? Cause I mean, your story is so similar to my own. It's really yeah. interesting how, how much of, of, of some of the things that you've experienced and, and the ways that you're, 
your career has just gone in all these different directions. It, it really reminds me of myself. And I'm curious, what what were some of the challenges? Like what were some of the hardest yeah. part of, of changing your career so many times? I, yes. And I love that you said that, Teresa, because I kind of identified that myself. That's why I asked you for your bio, because I wanted to sort of, I was like, you know, there's something there, there, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, thanks for recognizing that, too. Um, you had asked me earlier, and I don't know that I answered it the way exactly I wanted to, which was, you said, well, you know, was it hard for you to serve on active duty? Um, it was hard for me when I recognized that I really wanted to be on active duty. I at first, I kept my cards close to my vest, maybe to my detriment. Um, you know, I was a PAO at the time, and maybe I didn't share with the right people because I felt like I had spent too many chips, and it was just going to be like way over the top to tell somebody, hey, I really want to go back on active duty. What do you think? I don't know that the support, like, or I felt at the time that the support wouldn't have been there, and maybe it would have. I don't know. Um, but that was very challenging for me when I knew I really want to go back. And it took me years to sort of unpeel my armor and just be vulnerable and tell people. And and, and that's what I did to uh, Vice Admiral Cooper at Fifth Fleet. I finally arrived to the point where I, you know, and, you know, he's a professional. He's, you know, he, when he meets somebody, uh, oh, he finds amazing. out very quickly uh, what makes you tick. And he does it because, you know, he, he wants to know. He's a people person. So oh, he is. Mm-hmm. I just laid it out there for him, and uh, and he really played a significant role. I mean, I had laid all the groundwork, but he played a significant role in helping me get through these extra hurdles that I needed to go through in order to get to where I am now. I'm so grateful for that. Um, but, you know, this is life. This is what makes the world work. I mean, like, again, these personal connections, people who care, people who will invest uh, people who will, um, you know, discover like, hey, I'm worth this. Uh, you know, let's let's do this. Let's make things happen. Uh, that is what makes our Navy so great because it's filled it's everywhere. It's filled with, you know, all ranks, uh, all areas, uh, you know, all designators. Um, there's people everywhere like that. Um, but uh, the hard, hard part for me, definitely, like, like I said, the, um, the serving as a civil servant in the Navy. I later uh, worked for the Department of Treasury and for the IRS. Um, but really knowing that um, I really wanted to be in uniform, that was hard. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's almost like you you were called to do this, Susanna. That that's really what I feel like. I feel like you're like living your calling and it's so amazing when I talk to people who who really are living their dream. They're they're doing what they were meant to do and I can I can sense that in 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 everything that you're saying and um it's funny you mentioned Vice Admiral Cooper. He was my CEO on USS Russell. He's the one I lat transferred yeah. to the public affairs community. Oh my um, gosh. Yeah. So he was instrumental in in helping me become a PAO. So uh it's just interesting. We have a lot of ties, Susanna. Um We do. We really really do. So so now you're an FAO, you're you're a foreign area officer. What what is your when you when you go to uh you're you're on active duty now, right? I am. Are you? I am. Okay. Yeah. So so where are you, where are you where are you posted now? Yeah, so I'm uh the plan for me right now, of course, you know, the needs of the Navy always dictate, you know, you yes. know where people are going and what what they're doing. So 
I'm at the needs in the Navy right now, um, my family and I, but I, um, I intend to be stashed here in San Diego. This is where I live with my family. We've lived here for the past eight years uh, and I'll be here until uh, the summer of 2023. So basically next summer, uh, right now, um, it looks like I'm gonna be headed down to South America uh, to the U.S. Embassy in Bogota. Uh, of course, that could change, but that's where I'm slated right now. And I'll be the Navy chief down there. Incredible opportunity um, and very humbling. Uh, I think the Navy has a lot of faith in me. I'm, I'm grateful for it. But at the same time, uh, you know, I'm, I'm definitely going to do the prep work now be before, you know, we get there. <laughs> right, right. So for people who are listening to the show that don't really understand uh, foreign area officers, I, like I was, I showed you that one video I've already had. You're now my second uh, FAO yeah. I've had on the show. So this is exciting. Right. And, and, I'm, and I'm fascinated by this career field because I do believe that there is definitely a tie between people who are professional communicators and then people who, who work as diplomats. I, I just yeah. feel like that's such a smooth transition. And so for people who are listening to the broadcast that may not be as familiar with FAOs, I think most people understand public affairs, but what would you, how would you describe uh, the kind of the day-to-day -day role of a, of a foreign area officer? Yes. Well, first of all, our preferred um, terminology is that we are strategic operators um, and we do work in U.S. embassies, uh, but we and we do work with diplomats for sure. And I think um, early on in in, um, in sort of the, uh, you know, the, tra the trajectory of our designator um, kind of equating military diplomat that, you know, kind of to get in people's mind what we do. But we provide strategic advantage. We provide um, specific area regional council and strategic advantage to our commanders. That's what we do. Um, so we uh, foreign area officers work in the line of security cooperation. We work with our partner nations. We communicate like and you hit the nail on the head, Teresa. There's so much overlap, I feel, that I see between public affairs and um, and foreign area officers and communications is key. It's number one. So for FAO to communicate with our partner nations, we have language specialty because we um, need to be able to communicate in some form or fashion within uh, the languages of the regions that we are working with, with our, um, with our partner navies. Uh, we deal with foreign military funding, uh, foreign military sales, um, excess defense, uh, defense article exchanges. So these are all um, toolboxes in our toolkit of how we exercise security cooperation. And really, um, you know, the broader perspective is uh, global security um, around the world, but we're the regional experts. We provide strategic advantage to our commanders. Outstanding. And such an important role because you guys also are a lot of times the liaisons for the militaries who are uh, like, especially for the port visits and other things that we would do. I remember I'm working with the FAOs on a lot of those initiatives and projects. And I mean, they're really the glue that that, 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 like you said, that shows that strategic council between the State Department and the military. And it's such a, such a vital role. Um, so do you speak uh, fluent Spanish? Is that why you're going to South America? Yes. So uh, again, and uh, sort of a hallmark of foreign area officers is we do have to maintain a language uh, proficiency. And we do that through taking the defense proficiency test. I take it annually. Uh, some of our foreign area officers are native 
foreign language speakers, uh, which I'm so envious of, but I am one, uh, I'm not able to score high enough to take it biannually. I have to take the test annually. Uh, and again, in part of my preparations for going down um, to South America, I will bone up on my Spanish. Uh, I, I did spend a year in Cadiz and it was a complete self-immersion is what I call it. <laughs> but uh, I did pick up Spanish when I was down there. Um, some incredible people helped me along and and uh, you know got me to the level where where I I, I am fully qualified fail. <laughs> well, congratulations. I, I, I'm so happy for you, Susanna. So I'm gonna transition a little bit now to just leadership in general and some of your um, tried and true methods for leadership and for leading. And, and, I, I, and I'm curious from your perspective, what is it that you think um, is the most essential ingredient uh, to, to effective leadership? You know, I really think authenticity and being yourself, part of that is learning who you are. And Teresa, I know that you've had your own journey in recognizing that, but um, you know, when, when you do it, when you get there, when you thoroughly understand what that is and that you have a role in the Navy, you have a role in the military, you have a place in this world uh, and your gifts, you're the only one who can deliver them. Uh, I think just by nature, you inspire others to, to do the same. I agree. And I think that there's something that everyone can, can bring to the table using their own unique skills and ability. Uh, sometimes we get locked into thinking there's only one type of person or only one type of, of thinking about something. Um, and, and then there's sort of a group think that, that comes in. But by having people with diverse backgrounds, perspectives, I, I really do believe that we make the organization better and, and we can carry the organization forward and get some of that long-term strategic growth that every organization needs. It doesn't matter where you're working. I think every organization uh, has has its potential to go further. And part of understanding yourself is knowing, like you said, what are those things that, that you bring to the table? And authenticity is so important because when you know who you are, uh, you, can, you, can, you can withstand um, a certain degree of adversity because um, you're, you're, you're able to own the things that uh, you could have done differently. And you're able to also to recognize when there were some things that were beyond your control. And I'm sure you've experienced that as well. Oh, I love that you said that. And I can think of a very specific example where I was being myself, but it wasn't at the appropriate time. And I went back and I owned it. I recognized it. I addressed it with the people who I needed to address it with. And in the end, I think I came out um, on top. I'll just say that, you know, I, I think people understood that it was an honest mistake. Uh, we are human, we all make mistakes. Uh, let me just give a plug here. I would love to hear more from our senior leadership, uh, you know, how they over, have overcome their own mistakes. Uh, I, I just, I think it's healthy to, and it's good for learning. It's good for a growth mindset. It's good for getting real and getting better, uh, definitely. I think that component is so important. And I do wanna mention something else that has become really near and dear to me the more senior, um, I just put on 06 on October 1st. So um, I think mentorship is very important. And when I say mentorship, uh, it, that also expands to recruiting. Uh, we are in a strategic environment that we must recruit and, maintain and retain 
the absolute top in uh, you know various career fields that we employ. So when somebody, when I hear, and I because as you identified, I've had such a diverse career. I have many people that um, come to me and say, Susanna, I think, and a lot of them are interested in public affairs, to be quite frank. A lot of them are interested in foreign area officer. And so they say, you know, you were a PAO, you were a FAO. I think you should talk. I say yes every time, every time I say yes. And, you know, from the conversations I have with, with these people who think they might be interested in serving, uh, I've learned so much myself. But, um, I mean, you know, we've we can't afford to ignore people and sort of throw up a wall and say, oh, well, you didn't, you didn't do such and such. So I don't know that you're worthy. I mean, first of all, who are we to say that? But we absolutely need to take seriously, uh, you know, uh, acquiring, uh, you know, the top talent. And so I, I, I just want to push that plug, uh, mentoring and mentoring people who maybe they they're maybe they're not part of our lives yet or they you know we might not uh, you know cross paths professionally up until that point but you know lending a year and sort of you know just dedicating the time to let them know what the navy is all about oh my gosh absolutely and and i always try to take the time when i can and where i can uh to talk to anybody who wants to talk to me about public affairs or about uh well now nato uh right yeah, all, all you know, all things that 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 I'm associate or podcasting. I get people who will ask me how to start a podcast, things like that. And I think that that's that's your duty is to take mm-hmm. the things that you've been taught. And someone taught me these things. Somebody, I mean, I I went back and forth with people for for months about podcasting and about how to get started and all these other things. So when other people come to me and ask those same questions. It's, it's my duty to pass it on. And Amanda Huffman's the same way. She does the Women in the Military podcast. And I've been seeing now that she's starting to do actual courses on teaching podcasting and, and writing. And she's written a book about uh, women in the military and or girls. I have it right here. I'll give her book a plug. But it's just the, you talk about mentoring. I mean, this is this is mentoring 101 oh, right there. Oh, that book. Yes, yes, I yes. That book. Thank you for reminding me. Yes. Yes, That's yes. Awesome. So I don't know if Amanda will watch this, but uh, uh, <laughs> definitely gonna gonna plug her book, and uh, I'm definitely I do a posting on it later. But no, to your to your point, it's it's so important because again, it was it was bestowed onto us uh, that type of leadership and mentorship, and so the only thing that we can do is give that back to others. In in my view. Yeah. And I also, um, Leslie Likens, I, I, for the name of me, I, I, I can't think of the name of her podcast, but, uh, you know, serving as a reservist, you, you know, many people don't understand that you're basically serving, uh, you know, two full-time jobs. It's not just, you know, they say one week in a month, two weeks of the year. It's such a misnomer. If you are, you know, if you're serving as an officer in, uh, in the reserves, you are pulling double duty, and that that can be a real challenge. And I know Leslie goes into great detail about that. She does. She has an, an amazing show, and uh, she was also her and Amanda were the two that really helped me as well when I was getting my my show off the ground and had a million questions uh, about how to do this. So, what would you say to someone who is considering uh, joining the public affairs community or joining FAO or they want to become a surface warfare officer? Because you, you've really done, you know, you've done so much. Um, yeah. what, what, what kind of advice? I mean, I'm sure you do get people who come to you. So what, what, are, what are some of the most, the key things that you ask them to keep in mind? 
Yeah, I well, I when somebody comes to me, I I try to sort of probe them a little bit, and I I want to understand what their drive is, what what they really um, are wanting to do. To do, uh, uh, you know, why are they drawn to the FAO, the Foreign Area Officer, you know, policy fields? Why why are they drawn to public affairs? Um, as you know, far as being a surface warfare officer, um, I I haven't had a lot of people ask me about it, but some of <laughs> right, us, I, right. I, had a, I have had a few, um, uh, you know, sort of, you know, want to hear about, you know, my career uh, trajectory. But um, yeah, I, I'm, I just try to, I try to get to that core, like what is driving them um, before I can Kind of lend them well this i mean because there are there's some hard data that i'm able to give them of what their for example their prospects of promotion might be if they're in one community as mm -hmm. opposed to another and um you might not realize it's important now but i can uh if you're anything like me which they might not be but if they are when they the more time they put into something and the more senior they get that's actually going to become more important to them so i you know i try to give them um uh, of course, tailored to different people's needs, but I try to give them, um, uh, you know, my perspective. That's all. And I always tell them, this is me. This is my observation. You must, you need to speak to other people. Um, you know, I'm not, I, this, you know, what I have to say is not gospel. So. I love what you said about just being curious and approaching people who come to you for help from a place of curiosity and understanding instead of just a one way, this was my story, this is how I did it. Because everybody does, like you say, have a different motivation and a different reason for why they want to do what they do. And sometimes if you just listen, you may find out that maybe public affairs isn't the right choice now. I mean, I, I had somebody I was mentoring in, in, in Virginia who, who just will make a great public affairs officer, but there were some things that I felt she needed to brush up on first and master. And then once once she has a little more time doing those things, um, I, I think she'd be a great candidate. But if I hadn't taken the time to really listen to her story and understand sort of where she was in her journey, um, it would have been as easy to say, oh, sure, just put in a package. But sometimes that's not the right step yet. There's maybe mm -hmm. other things that someone needs to do first to really get a better understanding of what it is that they're trying to accomplish. Yeah. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. And it's funny because we were, you asked me earlier about, you know, we're talking a little bit about my, my surface warfare um, uh, career. And um, I always go back to it. It's so foundational of, of what I do now. And um, I just wanted to, to just say here, you know, to reinforce it. Um, I, uh, for my promotion on October 1st, I actually took a select group, uh, made, you know, mostly people who came from out of town and my immediate family. And Mobile Bay, I actually rode her from Yakuska to San Diego back in 2000, 2001. She's still here. And she's still commissioned. So we walked aboard Mobile Bay. We went to the forecastle because I was the first lieutenant. And that was um, my initial uh, promotion ceremony was on that ship. So, um, gosh, you know, and, and I always look back and I'm, I marvel at our surface warfare officers at our women today. I, I marvel at our submarine women. I marvel, um, at the aviators and all that they've been able to accomplish within the past 20 years, truly incredible. And so, for example, if somebody comes to me and they're really kind of a warfare designator, um, 
personality, uh, you know, I, I would let them know, hey, if you really want to drive the Navy, you should consider a warfare designator career field. If that's if that's what you're, you know, if that's what you want to do. So mm-hmm. it takes all kinds, Teresa, you know that. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you uh, to Dr. Uh, Demita. And I might not pronounce the last name correctly. Zwieback, uh, uh, Commander. She said, really enjoying this interview. Thank you, Captain Brugler, for sharing your journey. Oh, and, thanks for saying that. Yeah. And it's it's really important, I think, for people to share their stories like this and share their journey because I think that just listening to somebody else's story might might have a spark within you who that, to say what you may want to do or where you want to go. What would you say are, are some of the, the best advice that your mentors gave you to get to you to where you are today? Um, gosh, that's, that's another uh, good question. Um, I think, you know, staying at it, uh, staying the course, um, I think believing in myself, uh, sort of recognizing that I have talents and gifts that, um, uh, you know, as we kind of brushed on earlier, um, you you know, the, the layman might, might not look at me and say, oh, she's, a, she's an exemplary naval officer. She's definitely going to make 06. I don't think that's probably ever happened in my life. I don't think anybody's looked at me and said, oh, yeah, she's definitely a, a you know, Navy captain material. But uh, knowing um, that, uh, you know, that everybody has a piece, everybody has uh, a very important role. And quite frankly, it's, it's those outliers that provide the strategic advantage. And that is so true. So, um, you know, recognizing that and just going with your gut, if you know, this is what you are supposed to be doing, then you do it 110%. Totally agree. Oh my gosh. You're like singing my song. Yep. Nope. (laughs) Totally agree. Susanna, you, you just, you, you sometimes know too. I think sometimes being that different voice in the room, uh, who can ask, the hard question that nobody else wants to ask sometimes isn't easy, but it's the right way to be because it, in my view, anyway, it, it pushes an organization forward or it, it, it allows people the opportunity to consider a perspective that um, they may have missed. And, and I think that if more people have the courage to do that, organizations are just going to keep getting better. And then there's a time and a place and you got to pick your battles and all those things. But I, I do think that that's why we were put on this earth is to make incremental changes to make society better. Um, I mean, that, that to me is, 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 is either you're going to get busy living or get busy dying. And, and that's well, part of evolution living. Evolution never stops. That's <laughs> right. That's a certainty. You know, you're, you're, you're if, if you're born, you're going to die and you're going to evolve. Like, like, you know, mm-hmm. those, those are the three certainties, certainties in life. So. Right. Well, I think we're probably going to be wrapping up here in a little bit, but I want to make sure that I touched upon anything uh, else that you wanted to discuss or any opportunity or story that you wanted to share that I haven't asked you about yet. Anything coming to mind? Uh, I thank you, uh, you know, for, for everything, Teresa. Thank you for being open to my story and, and to helping me tell it. Um, I do want to say uh, that I feel so grateful that uh, I think the more challenges I've had to overcome, the more hurdles and obstacles in my way that have made things really, um, at times, uh, seemingly difficult to get to where I really wanted to be, the more I've had opportunities uh, to look around when I did accomplish a different milestones um, and see 
just how many people who have been in my corner and I didn't know it at the time. And uh, I'm one, uh, I now at this point in my life, I don't believe in leaving things unsaid. So I, I really try to reach out to people and say, hey, thank you. I know, you know, maybe you didn't hear from me from a while, but I wanna say thank you for being there for me. And um, it's really been a humbling journey, but you made a difference for me. So thank you. And I think that is actually, it's a richness and it's something, I think some maturity um, naturally lends itself to, to really understanding how things come about. And um, I'm, you know, that's just something that's, that's been humbling for me, but probably the best part of getting to where I am. It's not the accomplishment, it's the understanding that what it took beyond my own efforts for me to get here. Right. Yeah, no one is an island. We all have people around us who help us in in ways sometimes even at the mo even in the moment we may not realize what they did to help us along or or make us better, but then we can look back and and really understand why that situation happened or or why that difficult difficulty arose and then say, "Okay, well, that was the lesson that, that I was supposed to have at that time. So yeah, no, yeah. I love it. Absolutely love it. Well, well Susanna, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Um, if people want to reach out to you, what, where's the best place they can find you? Uh, LinkedIn is a great channel to reach me. I'm on there every day. So that's, uh, I think that's probably the best place. Awesome. Well, I will, I will link to that in the description and, mm -hmm. um, I will meet you uh, backstage here in a second. I'm just going to go to a full screen uh, to do okay. our closing. I want to thank thank you so much, Susanna. And I want to thank all of you guys for joining me tonight. Thanks for your patience on the little bit of technical difficulties we had uh, getting started in the previous broadcast. I will be deleting that broadcast and then just posting this one. Uh, Please be sure to subscribe to Stories of Service, and uh, I'll see you all next week uh, for another episode. Have a great day. Bye-bye now.